I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today, I'm talking to John Sherwood, who leads a network of microchurches in Asheville, North Carolina. Listen as John shares about how he came up with the idea of starting microchurches, who inspired him, what kind of results he's seen, what kind of vision he has for the church, and who would benefit from this model of church structure. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. The CLIMB Small Church Leadership Conference is around the corner, November 30th through December 3rd in Dallas, Texas. I really hope that you're coming. It's going to be an amazing time. I want to ask you to please register today. This is an event you don't want to miss, because if you're a listener of this podcast, I know that you're a grower. I know that you want to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches, and you need encouragement. You need you need building up. It's been a couple of years since we had our last conference. You need people around you that are going to call you higher and encourage you and lift up your arms. So I want to ask you to please register. Go to robskinner.com, look for the Climb tab, and please register today. I want to see you in Dallas. John, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. I really appreciate being here. I know we've never met personally up until now. And so I'm really, really happy. I got a, a email from, or maybe as a text from Joey Hungerford in Bend, Oregon, who he leads a small church out there. And he's like, Hey, you really need to talk to John Sherwood in Asheville, North Carolina and find out what he's doing there with the micro churches. And so I don't know who Joey is, but thanks Joey. I really appreciate that. <laughs> if we've met and I forgot, I apologize. <laughs> That's great. So what you're doing there is is leaking out and people are hearing about it. And so that's great. John, how'd you become a Christian? Um, so I grew up in North Florida, North Central Florida in the Gainesville area. Most of my life I grew up, uh, I would say fairly, I kind of call it, I call it a uh, kind of a cultural Christian experience, kind of the C&E church Christmas and Easter um, kind of grew up in a Christian context, but wasn't really devout, didn't go to church a lot, definitely never read the Bible. Um, but I would have marked Christian, you know, on a on a survey and not Muslim or Buddhist or or anything else. And so um essentially I lived life the way I wanted and kind of constructed a spiritual vision of God the way that I believed and thought and kind of borrowed ideas from various places and and that led my life to a massive dead end of nowhereness, um, you know, trapped in sin and, uh, you know, depression and suicide and drug addiction and uh, in and out of trouble with the law and jail. And I decided, hey, I I, I can't run my life too well. And uh, through what would be some coincidental, perhaps providential circumstances, I ended up um, starting to read the Bible with another young man my age in my early 20s. Uh, my second time around in college at a community college there in Gainesville, Florida. And um, I learned about discipleship and following Jesus and actually obeying him and that being 
the basis of what it means to be a Christian. And I'd never heard that before. I'd heard believe um, and you get to go to heaven and have eternal life. And I was like, great, who wouldn't want that? Right. And then I realized that there was actually a cost to following Jesus mm. and um, that I couldn't I couldn't have Jesus if I wasn't willing to give up everything for him. And at that point in my life, I realized that there was nothing in life that I wanted <laughs> and nothing that was really ultimately worth the eternal. So I decided, hey, let's throw my hat in the ring and try to follow this guy, Jesus. And uh, I've been doing that for the last 20, 25 years now and uh, have since, you know, devoted myself to the work of the ministry. I knew right away that uh, that was really what I wanted and my my highest calling and purpose in life was to share about this Jesus that I had not known about uh, to others who were in similar circumstances to me. And so, um, you know, I graduated college and um, uh, went into the ministry and have been in the ministry uh, all throughout the southeastern part of the United States primarily. And now I currently lead um, and help to lead a part of a leadership team of a, uh, a church here in the Asheville, North Carolina and greater Western Carolina mountain area. Mm-hmm. I love that area. I mean, I've been there one time a couple years ago for a Christian writers conference in Ridgecrest. And I remember flying in and the hills are like purple. I mean, it's just the most beautiful mountainous country. And it was awesome. I was like, wow, this is amazing. So to find the church leader, talk to the church leader of that area. You're in a little little slice of heaven over there, John. It's really amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a destination place. A lot of people love it here. And tourism is the biggest, um, you know, economy. And uh, we actually were a little trepidatious about coming just for that reason. We Mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that our motives were really about kingdom purposes and not just about leisure and pleasure, um, though it is actually an incredible place. Yeah, yeah, it's very (laughs) like, I got to bring my wife back here, we got to do a vacation in in Nashville. How, how did you and your wife, Brittany, meet? Uh, so my wife, Brittany, and I met, um, we met briefly, actually, on a, a random trip that I took with some friends. She grew up in New York, uh, a part of this faith tradition, and um, didn't see each other, really interact much for several years. And then we ended up kind of circumstantially going on staff together um, at the same church in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And we actually worked together in the ministry for a few years and became very close and um, became good friends. And um, I was still going through a, a lot of knuckleheaded issues, trying to find some direction in various ways in my life. We actually parted ways and I went and led a small house church in Auburn and Tuskegee, Alabama. And she went back to New York. And eventually later on, I, I tell people I sort of got my act together and realized what an idiot I was and uh, decided we needed to, to start dating. She was really the girl I've been looking for all along. So we built a, a, a strong kind of long lasting friendship um, before and one that was uh, really quite centered on work of the kingdom of God. And so that was ultimately what I think brought us together. And um, we were married in 2011 uh, in Florida and have been uh, working in the ministry predominantly together uh, since that time. So we have two uh, small boys, uh, Huck and Wyatt, who are now f- uh, about to be six and eight. So um grateful for my family. It's one of the one of the greatest blessings of my life and I think a direct um, result of me following Jesus. But I was single as a disciple for 10 years and served in the ministry the majority of that time. And uh, I have a heart for the single life and for um, people being singularly devoted to the Lord. And I believe I 
I wrestled through that season and got to a place where I really maximized that that station in life for the Lord um, and believed that, you know, God led me to um, a place of having a companion and a, and a partner in ministry. Uh, but I, I believe that, um, you know, there's so much value in um, really embracing and experiencing singleness in the Lord to its fullest capacity, which I think has some challenges in our broader secular culture, as well as sometimes our faith tradition culture. Right, right. Well, how did you come up with the idea of microchurches? Oh, man, you want the long, medium, or short story? <laughs> However you like. Um, I mean, really, it originates in my own personal wrestlings with the Lord and the church. Mm -hmm. Um I was on staff at like a, you know, medium to large size church. I was like an associate pastor. And um, I just started feeling um, more acute sense of discomfort and dissatisfaction with some things I was seeing about kind of how we did things, some modus operandi and, and the effects that that was having on the disciples uh, and the followers of Jesus. I started noticing um, some ways that that we did things that may not be having um, the impact and effect and outcome that we were saying we wanted, um, namely people growing more into the likeness of Christ. Um, so I won't go into too many details of those things, but I kind of wrestled through that. And that eventually uh, set me embarking on a journey of just exploring are there other approaches, other ways to doing church than kind of the traditional model that I've always seen, which I would call the traditional model that, you know, the large emphasis is on the Sunday gathering and the things that happen there. Traditionally, it's uh, primarily a very small subset of people that are um, leading, speaking, singing. They, they are the people on stage um, and it can very easily become about a spectatorship upon a performance. And not that that's anyone's goal or desire, but I've just noticed that that dynamic is so difficult to not achieve in those environments. And so um, I started exploring, trying to just read and poke around the internet. And um, it was actually, um, it was the influence of Francis Chan originally that really got me involved in thinking about kind of this house church model. Of course, there were some other people locally in our faith tradition, uh, like the porters, et cetera, that I knew that were also experimenting in some similar ideologies. Um, but I, um, I started um, really getting connected with Chan, who had left the traditional church that he had started in Simi Valley, which by all metrics and measurements was a huge success. And he essentially, you know, I don't know that he would put it this way, but from the outside, it looked like he kind of dumped that for the conviction that this isn't really producing disciples of Jesus and some of the methodologies that we have may actually put unnecessarily roadblocks in front of people to be and become disciples of Jesus. And so he left um, that to embark upon another work. And the first iteration um, out of San Diego was called We Are Church, which is still going to this day. He's a little bit more loosely connected, but uh, he was the originator. And it was essentially a house church model that really tried to um, uh, dissolve that kind of clergy laity divide, right? And so there was no paid staff, um, there was no buildings, um, there was no contribution or um, payroll, there was, you know, there's no money flowing through the church uh, per se to support the activities of the church. Um, and so I got involved in that and started to get exposure to that. And I actually did some training uh, with that group 
And um, that was kind of the original catalyst for me that, that made me go, hmm, I think there's something here to explore. Um, and so, you know, I continued to uh, kind of get more um, exposure to other groups, um, in particular in the West. Um, and there's several names and authors and things like that that, um, you know, I can supply later if you're interested. But um, yeah, I just started learning from other people that were trying an approach to church like this for the goal of um, not only making disciples in terms of like a conversion and getting people forgiven of their sin and having a right relationship with God, not but going beyond just a transaction of salvation and a goal of really trying to form people into the likeness of Christ, that people are continually growing and maturing into the likeness of Jesus. And I think that that, I don't know that I would have put um, language to it at that time in my journey, but I think that's what I was feeling was missing is that I saw people in the church for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and if I was honest with myself, and even as I looked in my in myself in the mirror, I started to ask the questions of, are we really looking more and more like Jesus or have we stagnated and, and where did we stagnate and why? And I think that, you know, some of my exploration started to put together what I was just talking about with that transactional model of salvation that um, I started to learn and, and recognize, I think, and see more clearly that the gospel that I had even preached to many had been more focused on kind of getting them saved and getting their sins forgiven and less on them becoming like Jesus going forward. And so what I realized is that the context and environment that I was in was helping people come in the door, but then there wasn't much happening after that. And what was the, the satiation point, right? Like what helped me and others to feel satisfied was that I had my sins forgiven. I got baptized for the right reasons, et cetera, et cetera. I have the right doctrine of conversion and of course, no, no one blatantly thinks this or says this, right? But I think there's just like a sort of an ethos of the culture that can lure us into this stagnation. And I started looking at how do I understand the gospel that Jesus taught and lived in the New Testament? And how, how does that compare and contrast to the gospel that I'm presenting to people? And so that was what was attached to how I started looking at church. And what is church? What is the gathering of believers, the ecclesia, the, the, the place where we gather and why? Like, what are the purposes of why we're gathering? And so I think that was a part of that origin story for me that led me upon this journey of moving towards, you know, what we call micro churches. Um, and I guess to just define terms, uh, typically in these spaces, micro churches differ from traditional house churches in that house churches are autonomous from anything else, generally speaking, right? These terms can obviously be interchangeable and used different ways, but generally speaking, house churches represent something that is a single autonomy of a group in a house. A microchurch typically represents something quite similar, but it's connected to other expressions of church. And there's usually some um, structure of uh, ecclesial authority, church leadership, etc. Um, and all the, the details of how the logistics work in those can vary from group to group in terms of paid staff and, and um, you know, buildings and how the group um, runs some of the logistics can vary widely. But um, the, the, the kernel that I think that pervades all of them that I've seen so far, again, especially in the West, is that um, it's a it's a it's a reaction in honesty, right? It's a reaction from the traditional Sunday expression church 
that has, I think most people would agree by and large, really um, been deficient in producing people that look like disciples of Jesus. So it's a reaction to that to go, hey, maybe there's some methods here um, and some goalposts that need to be moved to try to help people become more like Jesus and reflect him more closely. Um, and maybe some of the ways that we've done church have inadvertently and unintendedly hindered people from that because we've set up some of these environments and systems that uh, enable people to continually, quote, be fed, um, but they're not really growing. And some authors talk about, you know, American Christians are constantly being fed and they're just getting fatter and fatter and fatter, but they're not actually going and feeding others, which is the whole point of their, their being fed. Right. So anyways, um, I don't know if that, that's probably the longer-ish version, but that was sort of my personal introduction into uh, exploring these ideas and concepts. And we've just been experimenting with them, you know, like in the very beginning, I actually didn't know of any other groups that were doing this. And so we just kind of charted a course and we've made tons of errors. And it's really like a laboratory where we're just throwing chemicals in a bottle and sometimes stuff explodes. Um, but it's along that journey that I've actually found and, and, uh, uh, learned that there are other groups um, in the Christian stream that are trying this and we've learned some things and there's some things we go hey that's a great idea and some things we go hey that that probably doesn't work for us in our context or our theological underpinnings and background or whatever but um, yeah it's just been kind of one one giant experiment so we by no means have everything figured out um, and in a lot of ways you know I think in in some ways you could say we've gone backwards if we're using simple metrics you know um, that that can be hard to to measure which is why we have been so um, determined, I think, to keep our eyes fixed on what we're actually trying to achieve and that those things aren't always so easily measured um, in terms of, of metrics and, and um, discernible, you know, uh, measuring. So. So when you came and and you, were you the church planter of the Asheville church or was it already there? When no. You came? It was already there. I actually um, inherited from the church planter uh, who had planted it about seven or eight years prior. So I came in and inherited an existing group that was currently a traditional church expression. And so it was within that first year or two prior to COVID, this is all prior to COVID, that um, the, the timing actually just coincided that I was getting involved with Chan and We Are Church and really asking these questions in my previous ministry role and then I transitioned uh, through a series of events to um, kind of take over uh, pastoring the church here that was planted seven or eight years ago. And I was exploring these ideas. And so I started talking about that with the leadership and we kind of began to journey together. And we actually, we technically went through a year soft launch in 2019 as we were exploring this with the church. And before that, in 2018, we went through a year process with the church of just kind of spiritual discernment and exploration, just inviting people to pray about the ideas and to start talking about it, et cetera. And we actually hard launched in January of 2020 um, and then <laughs> essentially got shut down two months later. And so we had, and, and we were essentially, the whole project was essentially put on pause for about 12 to 18 months. And so we've, we've effectively had to reboot and almost restart over uh, from scratch um, in like January of 22. Um, or maybe summer of 21, kind of in that time frame. So we've only been at this for a couple of years um, and we've definitely seen a lot of growing pains and learned a lot. And, but it's also been really fun and, and exciting and challenging. So, but the group has, has been great. And I think has 
has really embraced the vision and and the why, right? The why behind all of this. But it has been, you know, to to I guess to use a a term from our our cultural moment, it has been a pretty massive deconstruction for most of us in a lot of ways, some expected and some unexpected. Okay, so when you came, so the church was planted, can you give me some some dates with 2009 or something like that originally? Um, it would have been, yeah, like two, yeah, right around there, 2010 maybe, some somewhere in that time frame. Okay, and you and Brittany moved there, when was that? 2018. Okay, so when you came in 2018, was this in the back of your mind, like, hey, I'm going to do things differently, or did you think, I'm just going to see see how what happens? Uh, no, it was definitely in the back of my mind already. So and you, it was something that I was talking about with them, even in the interview process. Okay, so you already had that in motion. And the church at that time was, what, 40, 50 disciples? Like when uh, that's you, about right, yeah. Okay, and my, my question is, so it didn't have anything to do with the rural area you live in. It wasn't a reaction to kind of the, the... I do think that there's a component of that for us in particular. So when I inherited the group, um, and you, hopefully you and the audience understand what I mean by that. You know, when I took the role of leading and shepherding the group, um, we actually had a membership list with disciples of upwards of two hours away from each other across three different state lines. And so geography... And the kind of rural nature of the context did have a part to play in it that we thought, hey, like our, our traditional forms of evangelism and doing church is bring people to church. That's just unrealistic when people are driving across a state line an hour to an hour and a half away. They're not going to get anyone in their local context to do that, especially in a Bible Belt context like we are, where there's 150 churches between point A and point B, and most everybody's already got one that they're going to and probably have been there for generations. So we realize like this, this evangelistically has some pitfalls, right? And so what if we could take church to people? What if we could empower, train, and equip, right? Ephesians 4, which is how I started to understand my role differently. What if we could equip disciples to be small church leaders that could take the gospel to their community and not have to bring their community to a place somewhere else where they can have the church led by professionals. You know, what if we could make them be church leaders in, in a, in an environment that's manageable, right? Like most people can't work a full-time job and raise a family and lead droves of people, but many people can do that with smaller numbers of people. And so we started to transition in how we thought about the spreading of the gospel, that it was less about being centered on the Sunday expression of church and more about disciples being empowered to go spread the gospel themselves. And that was the other correlation that we realized. I did a, a lot of uh, surveys and, and data fact-finding when I first got here. And we realized that most people um, had not been involved in actively spreading the gospel to people themselves, right? They had been, for better or worse, intended or un, they had been kind of um, inundated in this culture where they they took their friends to the professionals, right? To the preachers, to the evangelists, to the leaders. Um, most, most disciples have never actually personally baptized someone. It's usually somebody else that's on staff doing it. And so again, this these kinds of thoughts and, and realizations just started to reinforce that. So we're in a sense, we're actually bottlenecking things tremendously here. Um, and so we decided, hey, let's try to take a pass at 
and swing at this idea of taking church to people. What if people that are an hour away across state lines could be equipped and become church leaders? So that was a part of the original concept here in Asheville as well, as we did realize that, um, you know, the, the geography and the nature in which things are spread out reinforces these ideas. Though I do believe that these things, these kinds of concepts still work in a metropolis as well. I don't think it's only fit for the rural setting. And, and in fact, uh, many of the other groups that I've been exposed to, most of them are happening in an urban setting and a metropolis, not in a rural setting. Um, but anyways, I don't know if that answers your original no, question. That, no, that's great. What, what kind of results are you seeing? Now, it sounds like you're what, what you've said is that you, you're not using traditional yardsticks to kind of measure your progress. So if it's not numerical growth, what, what are your yardsticks that you're using to say, okay, we're going in the right direction? You know, if I'm totally honest, that's a really good question. And I think it's something that we still are wading through and evolving into and, and figuring out. I don't think we have all the answers on that. Um, right. I think, the, the traditional yardsticks, right, of numeric metrics of how many people showed up, how much money was given, how many baptisms occurred, how many people left, like numbers are very easy to quantify and thus very easy to um, extrapolate conclusions from. I'm not going to say that that's wrong, um, but I think most people, if they're honest, would say there are certainly shortcomings, right? There are certain things that those numbers do not measure, right? And so we've been trying to figure out and seek the Lord and his guidance on how do we measure and, and what should we be measuring? Um, and so I don't know that we have all that figured out, but I do think that um, what I would say at this point is I do think that we are interested and I am interested in helping people to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. And as I take a closer look at the New Testament, its authors, the early Christians, especially the the pre um, the pre Constantinian church for the first few centuries, um, there was very little emphasis or discussion on um, evangelism directly or as such. There was very little um, measuring sticks uh, about um, numeric growth or money or any of those things. the The measurement was always about someone's lifestyle reflecting that of Jesus, and but you know by extension. Apparently, what happened is as these people's lifestyles reflected Jesus, it attracted more people, <laughs> right? And so the early church did actually, in fact, grow uh, quite quickly, as far as we can tell, in an environment that was really hostile to it. But it wasn't because it set out to do that. The church's goal, as far as I can see, was not actually to grow per se, but to embody the life of Jesus personally and invite others into that life. And apparently that life and the way that it was being lived was attractive to many people. Um, and, and so it, it's it's interesting because it's almost like the same outcome, but for different reasons, right? And um, and I think that's been part of my own personal um, transformation and evolution, something that's still ongoing. And thus our, our church community is trying to figure out like, what are our goalposts? I this is how I put it in my local context is that we've we've moved the goalposts. Right. And the goalposts aren't just about this group growing in number, um, because there are a lot of really tried and true wash, rinse, repeat methods of doing that. If that's your end goal, if that's your goalpost. And this is kind of what Chan was talking about, you know, a decade ago. 
if you get a good talented speaker up there, you get good music, you have the right conditions, like more and more people will come to that. The attractional church is attractive to some. I do think that kind of culturally that's starting to wane a bit more in, in America. But um, if your goal is not to just attract people to something other than Jesus, how do we measure that? Right. And so part of what we've been trying to do is to take a look at when we look at the disciples, when we look at the community, when we look at ourselves, do we see clear evidence of us becoming more like Jesus? Where do we see that? How do we see that? Is that even measurable or able to be seen at all? And so these are some of the questions that we're starting to ask ourselves and to see if we're getting different answers. Um, and for me, I think the the group has grown numerically, but I, I don't like that means less and less to me now. And in fact, if anything, I'm probably more persuaded that if we really do proclaim Jesus and embody him, the crowds might actually get smaller. Um, and, and there's a lot of evidence for that, even in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus himself. And so I think we've got to wrestle with those things. And for me, I had to ask, why do I want this, right? Like, why do I like this goalpost? Um, and, you know, of course, sense of self, validation, identity, ego, et cetera. Like those are the things that I think the Lord is helping me to see and repent of that this ultimately isn't about me. It's not about some empire I build. It's not about the legacy that I live. It's about me trying to become like Jesus and leaving the rest up to him. And that has been super humbling. And uh, honestly, why I don't, I'm, I, I haven't talked about this much publicly. I mean, you're the first person that I've really like extended this conversation to beyond my local context and my local sets of relationships. Um, and that has been by design because we're, we're not trying to just create a new thing for people to go out and replicate because it may not work for us or for them, but we're trying to shift the goalpost that what we're after is to create is to make disciples who want to become more like Jesus mm -hmm. and leave whatever results happen from that in the Lord's hands. Now I could, I could, I could hear a counter argument in my mind right now, right? Playing devil's advocate. And I'm having a conversation with someone. They're like, well, so are you saying that the great commission isn't important? Um, are we not supposed to evangelize? You know, isn't that just an easy way to say, oh, we can just sit in a holy huddle and, you know, become more like Jesus in our inner private life and attitudes of the heart and not have to do anything about anything? Uh, I would say, no, that's not what that means. And as we take a close look at the life of Jesus, not what it meant for him or for his earliest followers, right? Um, them becoming more like Jesus had radical impact on the world around them um, to the point where most of them were killed for it. Um, and that was something that that really struck me as I was like, wow, you know, what in me and me following Jesus is rubbing up against my surroundings so much to the point where they want to kill me. And and where's the disconnect, right? Because now, and, and that's not to say that it's one for one, that if you're not dying for your faith, you're not actually following Jesus. Of course not. But I think these were questions that kind of helped us as a community start to re-envision and re-imagine these goalposts moving. So we're still in journey, right? We're still in process. We don't have any finite, you know, concluded cemented answers. Um, but I think we're learning how to become more comfortable in the wrestling, right? And in the in the process of of uh seeking God in his direction. Let let's say you jump into a time machine tomorrow and you decide, okay, I'm gonna dial this in for 2033 in Asheville, North Carolina, you come back and you see your church in 10 years. 
what's what would you like to see? How would how would you describe that church you see in ten years? How would you know that you've you go, okay, I did what I started out to do? Hmm. That's a good question. I think the thing that comes to my mind first is that it's a community of love and that people are genuinely loving others around them, both in word and in deed, and that they are remaining faithful and having fidelity to the teachings of Jesus and his life, even if it costs them their own life. And I think that's something that we haven't really had to wrestle with a lot in our context, right? Like being a Christian has been, um, it hasn't had severe consequence. And that, you know, our context in 21st century democratic America is different than first century empire Rome. But I do think that if, if I were to take that time machine and go back and go, what would I be looking for? Kind of connected to your measuring stick question. It's like, I would want to see people who love others, even at the expense of everything, um, because they have such great faith in Jesus and his kingdom. That's great. Okay, so let me just get, kind of drill down a little bit. Let's talk about money. Are you self-supporting or are you getting paid by the church? Me personally? Yes. So currently, my wife and I are supported vocationally by the church, the local church here. We're the, currently the only ones that are supported. Um, and we we have talked about, so one of the very first things that I discussed with the church here when we first started even discussing these ideas and whether or not we wanted to pray about moving this direction. One of the things I said was this is going to re-envision the role of the pastorate. And, you know, somebody's, somebody's first question was, well, what are we going to be paying you for? You know, like if you're not running the Sunday show, like what are we paying you for? Right. I think that's, that's, I think that's very revealing. I think that that paradigm is very revealing on that clergy lady divide and what we think the, the clergy is employed to do. And so there has been, and so, you know, I had to be very straightforward that look like I might work myself out of a job and I've got to be okay with that. Um, but part of this process is us re-envisioning the pastorate. Like what, so this goes back to the Ephesians 4 passage I referenced earlier, right? Like what are the teachers, evangelists, elders, prophets, apostles, what are they, what are they supposed to be equipping the works, the saints for works of service for? How do they do that? And what are they getting supported to do exactly? So a lot of it has been re-envisioning the quote full-time ministry um, where my job isn't primarily defined in terms of things that it has historically done. And, and obviously we're in transition. It's not, it's not been a cold Turkey thing, you know? Um, but I personally, I do believe, and I think there's ample evidence for this in the new Testament. There is a role for people to be supported for works of ministry but what works are those maybe what's shifting. Mm -hmm. So we're still exploring that um, and uh, and vice versa, right? That there are also roles for people who are not supported um, that have not been perhaps fully leaned into or embraced. And so we we refer to our leaders of our microchurches as microchurch pastors, that New Testament poimain as shepherd, that they are shepherds of their flock and they have um, spiritual um 
you know, leadership and authority of that group. And people like me and others, our role is to equip them for that work. Mm -hmm. um, but they're to lean into this calling of being a church leader. Now, obviously, that's not a church leader like we're used to, you know, thinking of church leader who's leading, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands or whatever, and having all of the logistical concerns that go into a traditional model. It's not that. It is the shepherding of a small group of people and helping them to become more like Jesus and modeling that for them themselves personally. So it, that's what I mean. I think earlier I said it has really deconstructed things in a lot of ways that we weren't necessarily expecting all the way down to how we understand stuff like staff and biblical roles. And, you know, and obviously there's great debate on, on all those things. And I'll, I'll let theologians greater than myself, you know, hack that out. But uh, we have had to come to some of those crossroads of, hey, how, how do we think about this and why? And, and I think that's why it's been such a slow process too. It's not as easy as, in, in my experience, in my opinion, it's not as easy as just going, okay, we're not going to meet in this location and we're going to separate out and go into these family groups, Bible talks, house churches, microchurches, whatever you want to call them. And we're just going to do it that way. In, in our experience, this is like deconstructed us down to some fundamental frameworks, <laughs> you know, of like, what do we think it means to follow Jesus? And how do we embody him and his kingdom in the world around us? Um, and those questions are, are harder um, and, and not as easy to answer. So, but it has been really fun. And I think it has been exciting and invigorating. And I do feel personally for me, and I think I, I would say on the whole, I feel confident saying that the group has felt a deeper call to following Jesus and has experienced fruit of that the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control. So you're, you're meeting with your own segment of the church, like your micro church, you're preaching on that Sunday, I'm assuming in a house and then other ministers are preaching in their houses. And is that how, like, what does your Sunday look like? Right. That's a great question. Um, because obviously when people first hear about this, the first questions they want to go to are logistics. Like, how do you make this work? What are you doing? Right. Um, and, you know, just to reiterate, I, I do think that it can be dangerous to get to those things before going through the more foundational things. Um, but for us right now at the current spot that we're in, in the journey, which we, we recognize that we're not fully where we intend to go. Um, we started with, um, one micro church Sunday expression a month and the other three were traditional Sunday expressions. So it has been like a, a long evolution for us to move in this direction. Um, the Sunday expressions of the micro churches are not just a smaller version of our traditional Sunday service. So there's not a sermon. There's not like singing led by certain people. The micro church and the microchurch pastors have a lot of latitude on what that gathering looks like. And we, we spent some time together as an entire church before we embarked on this, exploring some different ways to express meeting together. So we did things that we called like 1 Corinthians 14 services, where everybody came with a hymn, a song, a revelation, a tongue, etc. We spent time kind of practicing doing church in a different way before we split up and started doing that. But ultimately, what we want to do is equip the microchurch pastors to lead a community together to decide and determine what's best for them. It may not be meeting in a house at all. It may be that they're going to 
uh, oh, a battered women's shelter um, or a homeless shelter and serving food uh, to the homeless community in that area, which one of our groups currently does. That's their Sunday meeting. And so there, there's great variance from group to group in terms of what their expression might look like. And it may not even be on Sunday, right? And so essentially we're, where we're at currently is that we're doing two and two. So we have two micro churches a month and then two traditional church services a month that are on Sundays. And our goal is that we move uh, more towards uh, greater microchurch expressions, though I don't I don't foresee at this point, I don't think we'll ever stop meeting as a full network altogether. I do think there'll still be rhythms of that. And, and that's the component of the house churches not being autonomous, that there is some sort of networked element to all of this. And so the rhythms of how we do that ebb and flow, and we're still kind of pecking and hunting to figure that out and in process to that. But um, I think that we still will have a network gathering um, on some frequency, whether that's once a month or once a quarter or whatever, like we'll kind of navigate through that. Um, but those times are for different purposes than the microchurch times. The microchurches are not necessarily to replicate traditional church, right? Because now you're asking, now you are asking um, non, you know, vocational ministry people to do the works that vocational ministry people have traditionally been done. And they, they to be honest, they're not likely equipped to do that. Not everyone's equipped to teach and preach the word of God. Um, and and I, I have great conviction in that, right? James is very clear about that, right? Like, should not all presume to be teachers, right? And so we part of this is helping to strip away the wrong things so that people can live more into their calling and gifting um, and to do that more in community. Uh, so the, the pastors are doing that with their group. It's not just it's not just a smaller version of a hierarchical model. It's it's trying to lean more, more into a communal model where the group is making decisions. Now, of course, there's still spiritual leadership and, you know, the buck has to stop somewhere. A decision has to be made, but trying to train people and equip people to do that more in um, unison and involvement with the larger group. And so that has also led us into um, greater spiritual discipline practices, learning how to discern the, the leading and prompting of God and the Holy Spirit, spending time in solitude and prayer, spending time fasting. Like we've incorporated these spiritual disciplines as a fabric, a, a, a thread of the fabric of what it means to be in our microchurch network. Um, so again, part of that deconstruction, it's hard to, it's hard to just say one for one, like, okay, now we have a church service in five spots across the area instead of one. And there's five different people preaching. For instance, when I go to like, I'm a part of a microchurch and I'm not the pastor of that microchurch. Um, and I'm not preaching at that gathering, whatever that gathering might be. Um, so I also am submitting myself to be a part of the community. And I have a particular role in that community, but it's not the role of doing everything, if that helps to clarify any of that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Francis Chan. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you're talking about, is it letters to the church that, that he wrote? Yeah, all this happened prior to that. Okay. Well, I, so, you know, I've read that book and he talks about his microchurch effort in San Francisco, I believe, before he went to Hong Kong. And, um, you know, and I think there's another group of microchurches called, is it called Exponential or something like that? In, in Florida, they help sponsor like non traditional small churches. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're there's familiar. There's an underground in Tampa. Right, that maybe I think that's is that what it's called underground? To. Yeah. Okay. And so mm -hmm. there's there's that. One question is, how do you 
it puts pressure on that local leader, that local microchurch leader. And if you're not if you're not leading it, okay, every week they've got to kind of kind of come up with a game plan. How do you prevent burnout? Um, burnout from what? From leading their own separate churches as a non-paid person. Right. Uh, part of it is training them how to lead differently. Um, and, and it's a, a kind of going back to that gifts based paradigm of learning how to invite others into the process and everybody taking ownership of the group. Um, and so this is again, not to beat a dead horse, but maybe part of that deconstruction is I'm not responsible for everything in the church. They are not responsible for everything in their micro church. You know, we are responsible to be the church. And so part of my role to equip them, which is inc has included my own deconstruction, right, is to help them learn how to lead in such a way as to not burn out, just like I have to learn that, right? The context may vary, but the principles are all still the same. It's having a thriving relationship with the Lord, right? It's valuing the disciplines of solitude and Sabbath rest. It's it's empowering others, calling others to live into their gifts and calling, to live into the ownership of that group. And it's messy. It doesn't always work, you know, and that's obviously a real thing that we have to combat no matter what, right? We got to combat burnout even at our secular workplace. So, but I think that part of what we're trying to do is to alleviate the pressure. Um, and, and I think the unrealistic and perhaps even unbiblical expectations that one person is responsible for everything. And so, you know, you might, for instance, just to get really practical, you might have a person that's really great in the group at logistics and planning and they're super disciplined and they work well on spreadsheets and, and Google Docs and, you know, and so you have them lean into that and say, okay, I want you to take this piece and have this responsibility. Or you have somebody that's really great at singing and loves worship and writing music or whatever and say, okay, well, why don't you help take the lion's share of leading our group in song and, and in the, in the, the worship of God through music, um, what might that look like? What do you want to do? You know, so it's, it's more learning how to like pass the ball, like the pastorship and, and being a shepherd of Poimain is more about learning how to empower the sheep rather than, um, you know, bounding them with the right fence mm -hmm. and then saying, okay, here we go. I'm going to, I'm, I'm leading you because that does often lead to burnout. And we've seen that in the paid ministry too, right? Like we come from a faith tradition that has a long history of, of ministry burnout. And perhaps some of those things are, are part of that, um, you know, soup, but, but yeah, so we're, we're trying to figure that out of, okay, what does it look like? And, and that has meant even for the members, the disciples, right. Who have never, most of them have never been in paid ministry. And, and a lot of them have actually never been in leadership of any kind in the church. And they may have been a part of the church for decades, 30, 40 years. And so this is also a part of the paradigm is that, Hey, it's not just the people with the most gifts that need to lead, right? It's not just the, the quote, talented person or sharp person, but it's a person, we we often use the acronym FAT, right? Faithful, Available, Teachable. That in order to be a shepherd, you've got to be faithful to the Lord. You've got to be available, right? Not everybody's available at different seasons of their life to give time and energy. And you've got to be teachable. You've got to be humble and willing to continually learn and grow. And if you have those characteristics, we believe you can lead. You may be a terrible speaker. You may not have the highest SAT scores. You, you may not be able to carry a tune, you know, or whatever. But 
you you embody these characteristics, we think, hey, we want to empower you to lead. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that has been, I would say, uh, an encouraging uh, metric of growth. I think people have gained confidence and felt empowered in the Lord when maybe in in the past they they had not felt that, you know. Um, so, anyways. Well, that's one of the things that you write about in your your white paper on your website at ashevillechurch.org is your vision is multiplication, diversity, and engagement. So it sounds like people are getting more engaged. In in that, the white paper, one of the FAQ questions is, is the macro church wrong? Makes me think, okay, you, you know, this is kind of a, can be a hot topic. I know that in Florida, I think there were some, some backlash against the kind of the dispersed church. Are you getting criticism from proponents of traditional churches or getting criticism from proponents of alternative churches? Is that, is that, are you experiencing that yourself? Well, no, because no one knows about it. So if I do, I know it'll be because of you. <laughs> it'll be because of you. Um, but no, I mean, obviously in my local context and my region and the relationships I have with other church leaders, not at all. I'm in a great situation that I think people have been, you know, widely very supportive and, and incredibly inquisitive, you know, because right. everybody wants to know what's going to work. You know, that, exactly. that's sort of our bottom line ethos is, you know, what works. Um, that pragmatism, I think, is part of what has been deconstructed for me. But um no, I have personally not experienced a lot of backlash. I think a lot of people are trying to figure this out. I think there has been, uh, even in our faith tradition in the ICOC, I think there has been kind of a groundswell in America of people starting to explore ideas of house churches and be drawn to it more. I think there's, my personal opinion, I think in large, in Christendom in the West, there's a move away from the attractional church. I think people are kind of like getting to the end of that narrative and seeing this isn't, this has got some gaping holes in it. So I think there's a general inquisitiveness across all stripes of evangelicalism in particular, uh, but also in the ICOC. And so I haven't experienced a lot of negative pushback. If anything, I would say I've, I've, I've encountered a lot of inquisitiveness of like, Hey, what are you doing? And how do we do that? And what mm -hmm. might that look like over here in our mm -hmm. context and stuff? So, um, but no, I, I don't, I think, I think there is a place for the traditional model of church. And I think that it is able to provide and do a lot of things that, the small microchurch type expression can't. And so in an ideal world, I would say all, all expressions are needed, right? And that it is God who determines the parts of the body just as he desires them, not just in a local context, but in a global sense, right? And that all church expressions and all expressions of the gathered believers aren't going to look the same. And that's a good thing because we're all able to accomplish the purposes of God in different ways for different contexts and different peoples, right? And we see this we see this paradigm in the New Testament itself, in particular from the evangelist Paul, right? Like as he took the gospel to different contexts, um, he had to come up with different methodologies, different strategies. He had to wrestle with theology in some ways that were challenging, right? In these different contexts of how people had understood who God was historically, et cetera. So, so I'm in no way over here being the drum of like, hey, like microchurch is the answer and everybody should be doing that. No way. I, we think, hey, maybe microchurch is an appropriate expression for our context for these reasons we're going to try it out we may be wrong we may end up in 10 years going hey you know what this model over here is better we might go back to where we came from we're okay with that right we're okay with being in in an experimental process because we want to try to seek the lord's leadership and so that's again where some of these spiritual discernment practices have been embedded more deeply for us 
that it's not just, hey, John has a strategy and John has a vision and John has a plan. Everybody go get their position on the field and go execute this plan. It's like, oh, no, no, no. As a community, let's learn to seek God and try to discern what where's God leading us? Being okay with God may lead another group of people differently. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. It it's definitely seems like you're in beta mode where you're, you're working out the bugs and just trying different things and experimenting, which I think is important. I mean, there's so many things going on in the world right now. After COVID, people moving to non-traditional sites, moving away from metropolitan areas, moving to smaller towns, which I go, that's awesome because I've got a huge heart for smaller smaller towns. I was born in a small town, um, you know, planted church in small towns. So I, I, love, I love that heart, that attitude. And I think we've got to get creative on how can we saturate. That's, that's one thing in the, our family of churches that we've really targeted the metropolitan areas, which is certainly needed, but there needs to be a continual drive to saturate the, the dispersed areas, you know, the, the smaller towns, which are filled, filled with people. And we've got to find a way to effectively reach that area. I want to go back to your, go ahead. That was just to say, that was a part of my initial uh, draw to these ideas and concepts as I recognize that they're like, Hey, we really don't have a plan or any experience in reaching rural America. Right. So how are we going to do that? So that was a part of my like original inception to, to be drawn towards some of these ideas. So I, I think you're, you're totally right on there. Now on their website, you've got an iron group template. Now this is in traditional parlance. This is kind of like a discipling group, you know, probably the best way. And it reminded me of, the book Cultivating a Life for God by Neil Cole. And in in that, that group, you encourage people to meet together for 90 minutes and have confession. And I thought it was awesome. Where'd you get the inspiration for this model of discipling? And are you seeing people actually adopt it? Yeah, so so the Iron Group language actually was something here when I got here. It was I inherited it. Um, And it was kind of a, uh, it was a take on discipling groups. Um, And it wasn't, um, it's never been something that we've mandated. We don't manage it. It's not a hierarchical tree. Not everyone is in an iron group. The way we present it is that, and and again, this is in flux. We literally just had a conversation about this this past weekend um, of, you know, whether or not we want to continue to do these kinds of things. But the concept is We do see in the scriptures that we need one another, right? We need a a place and a vehicle to live out the one another passages. And even in a micro church, we can't do all of those, right? Even in a group of 10, 12, 15, 20 people, there's a level of intimacy and visibility and transparency that you just can't live with 20 people or 15 people. Um, But we are called to have like radically transparent and intimate lives with some and so our iron group is an attempt at a frame for that, right? A framework for that, that, um, you know, of course it's, it's based on the Proverbs 27, you know, as iron sharpens iron. So one person sharpens another, this idea that if you desire, right, to be sharpened and to sharpen others and to have that kind of life on life relationship with someone, here's a starting place, right? Here's a template that can be helpful and useful for you. If you need help getting something like that started. And if you need help getting a group together and you don't know who to do that with, come to us and talk to us and we'll we'll brainstorm and try to figure that out. But it's a very, it's presented as a very optional thing of like, hey, if this is something you want, here's some tools for you. 
it's not a, Hey, if you're going to be in this group, you got to have an iron group. Here's the people you're going to be with. Like, you know, some of my own personal history comes from a much more, what I would call kind of a regimented, a, a regimented um, approach to discipling, if you will. Um, and so that obviously has some advantages and has some disadvantages, just like our approach does. So currently we have approached it with this very much like, Hey, we're just wanting to put some tools in your tool, in your tool belt. This is why. And come to us if you need help with that, you know, but we kind of let people uh, figure that out on their own. Yeah. that So it's essentially a, a suggestion and a, a template that people can, can use or not use at their, at their discretion. I, one thing that I, I hear from you is there is a desire for you to have deeper one another relationships that this format that you have developed is is an attempt to try to engage people more, get more people engaged, and to try to take on the image of Christ. That traditionally has been the role of discipling, and, and, and we're known traditionally as the discipling movement. Now, there's been a movement away from that, I think, in the larger, in the larger world, because people realize when you, whenever you get involved with people, it's messy. And so, you know, even in business, there's, a, there's a, an attempt to say, okay, move away from employees, work toward, you know, um, software or hardware that doesn't, you know, it's, it's cheaper, it's easier. And in the same way, there's this movement across the world, like we talked about, a dispersion towards more rural areas, but at the same time, more isolation, like lack of engagement with people because with less people, there's less problems. People aren't going to, you know, even good-hearted people are feeling like, hey, I've tried to help other people, but I just get, you know, people right. get hurt or they get traumatized or some other, you know, malady that affects people. And it's like, so, hey, I'm just like washing my hands. I'm done with that. And I'm just going to go lead my own, you know, I can imagine people listening to this going, yeah, I'm going to lead my own little micro church with me and my wife and my right. kids, and that's our microchurch, and I don't want to deal with any other people. Right. Any right. thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a departure from following our Lord, right? Uh, it is messy, and it was so messy that it, it led Jesus to being brutally murdered. Um, and I think that, you know, that's where we've got to take a hard look in the mirror and go, Jesus, are you still my Lord? Are you, am, am I willing to endure suffering. I think of 1 Peter 3, right? That talks about enduring suffering as Jesus did, who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, he knows how messy human relationships <laughs> right. and interactions are, right? Uh, he knows how messy, um, but he sacrificed all to give us a different way a way to learn and to embody the eternal kingdom right now, a way in which it teaches us to forgive. It teaches us to heal from trauma. It teaches us to, um, to identify with the suffering servant. And, um, and I think that in some ways, we have to be careful that we don't paint a picture of Jesus as he is not. You know, for, for so many, Jesus is about what can he do for you, you know, and, and that seeps into our paradigms of church. Like, oh, well, church doesn't have the worship I like, or I didn't like the sermon, the speaker's not very good, or the children's ministry over here is much more hopping. And 
we've turned church into a consumer paradigm that right. it's about giving something to us that I believe my conviction is that is antithetical to the gospel, right? That is not the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. Jesus invited us into a community to learn how to suffer together mm. and that that's what it means to love. Mm. And that as you hurt me and as I hurt you, we do not give up on each other. We don't go just lead our own little micro churches in our own homes, isolated from everyone else because it's easier. We continue to crawl up on that cross and carry it every day with our Lord and go, Lord, I want to love like you did. Mm. And that is not going to come without scars. Right. Perhaps even death itself, right? To me, that's a radically different gospel than what I have even presented for years, right? Which is primarily Jesus gets you a get out of hell. And this, I don't mean to like over-exaggerate. So I want to be careful. I don't want to speak in the millennial hyperbolic language that I'm so used to. Right, you know? sure. I'm literally dying right now. <laughs> but... I do think that like I've had to take a look at the gospel that I preach, right? Um, I heard Bill Hull say one time in a book that he wrote, the gospel that you preach determines the types of disciples you make. Mm -hmm. And I've been wrestling with that for the better part of a decade um, and trying to take a closer look at what's the gospel I'm preaching and what kind of disciples is it producing? And you talk about a measuring stick, right? This goes back to some measuring sticks that are maybe a little bit harder. If I'm producing disciples that just want to, if my gospel message and my leadership and my influence is producing disciples that want to just go start their own microchurch because it's easier, I go, mm, I have missed Jesus. Well, John, what kinds of situations would benefit from this type of church structure? Um, I think that there are some benefits from this kind of approach to all situations, uh, but there may be some that are more easily identifiable than others. I think in particular, uh, in more rural settings, right, where you're probably not going to have a church of 2,000 people, you know, um, the mega church, attractional church model has struggled to infiltrate rural America, which is still a vast majority of the country uh, and even population. So I think there's some inherent benefits in a more um, loosely populated area. I think also, um, similarly, if there are um, situations where you might not have the resources uh, to um, support uh, a person that is uh, a trained evangelist or pastor or teacher or has theological education, you know, if you might not have the resources to support people full time in the work of the ministry, I think that this approach can also be quite viable because it's not dependent on that, right? So um, church planting historically has been, hey, let's garner up a few hundred thousand dollars, get a, a team of people, usually led by someone who has full-time ministry experience. Let's get six, eight, 10, 12, 20 people to uproot their lives, go move to a new location, try to get jobs and essentially start over their life to spread the gospel. That is very resource dependent on the front end. Um, and if you don't have those resources, you essentially can't plant churches in that in that way. This approach perhaps provides another avenue to potentially plant churches and get the gospel out without needing the bulk of those resources on the front end. So I think that kind of situation also can help when you don't have the front money, the people, and and also you're not necessarily uprooting your life. So one of the approaches we have here is that we are exploring and entertaining and training people to be, um, we don't really have a cool catchphrase or name for it yet, but essentially it's like a short distance missionary, 
So you may be a missionary that's planting a church in the town next to you. It might be 30 minutes away, but it's drivable. You don't have to uproot your life. You don't have to get a new job. You don't have to go move houses. And it may not be permanent, right? You may not be spreading the gospel and leading a house church in that area permanently, but you are sacrificing for a season to help get a church planted. And in this format, in this model, it makes something like that feasible and doable. Um, whereas you, you might not have that uh, in uh, what I would call kind of a traditional church planning model where you need the resources and essentially you're, you're uprooting people to go plant them like a flag in the ground. This is a little bit more of like, um, hey, I'm going to kind of extend my borders a little bit um, and, and hopefully have impact in some place that's viable for me to reach without having to uh, take all these, you know, upfront costs. And so it's another potential church planting model that could work for some, some situations that, uh, don't have, you know, um, especially if you're looking at rural contexts, a lot of people can't uproot their lives and go move to rural America and get a job and make a living. And that's much harder. I think that model works easier in a metropolis because most people can find income and find work and there's enough of an economy to support that kind of uprooting. But if you're moving to a small town of 50,000 people, 10,000 people, you know, that's going to be much, much harder. Thank you so much for your time. Just one more question. What advice would you give to a person who wants to make this life count? Devote yourself to following Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It sounds probably pretty cheesy and and uh, cliche, but yeah, I mean, if you want to make this life count, I think what I have found makes my life and any human life count more than any other is to embrace the invitation that Jesus makes for us to live eternal life now, starting now, to live in his kingdom where we learn to love others, even our enemies, that we would turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, pray for those who persecute us, that we would share willingly that which we have and not just be about amassing stuff for ourselves. And I don't know, I just, I, I think that when I think of a life that matters, because that was ultimately what drew me to Jesus, right? I realized my life didn't matter and I wanted my life to matter. I think everybody wants their life to matter. But all the things that the world told me to do to make my life matter, pleasure, money, power, acclaim, attaboys, it, it didn't make my life matter. Mm. Um, and when I heard Jesus' call to follow him and that he would lift me up to the heavenly realms and ultimately give me a life here temporally as well as eternally that really mattered i said hey sign me up right and uh, i've been trying to struggle to to do that and live into that and 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 become that uh, ever since and i think if somebody's asking me what can i do to make my life matter i would say man set your eyes your heart your life on jesus and he will make it matter mm. he will make your life matter uh, because he is the creator of our lives yeah. right? i really believe that yeah. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, but you know what, Rob, I really appreciate the time being here with you. And thank you for um, just this interview, these questions. Um, I hope it may be of service in some way, but man, we are we are all in process. Yeah. We are all becoming. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully we can learn how to love each other along right. those processes, even when our processes may look different. That's right. Um, and I think that's something that I'm, I'm being challenged a lot with right now, you mm -hmm. know, of how can I love others whose processes may look different than mine, you right. know, and, 
and uh, how to think about those things. So, but yeah, super grateful for the time. Me too. Thank you very much. If a person had follow on questions and they, they, they thought, well, Hey, why didn't Rob ask this question? I don't want to ask this question. How would they reach you? Um, I have an online ministry, johnsherwood.com, J-O-N-S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D.com. So you can reach out to me there and see kind of a breadth of my work for many, many years now. Um, I have a podcast there and, and articles and stuff. I have not been as involved in that ministry uh, as I once was um, because I'm spending so much time in my local context preaching and teaching. Um, and I'm also in school full time in a doctoral program. Uh, but I, I have also uh, embarked upon a recent endeavor called Jesus Peace Collective. So I definitely want to make your audience aware of that. If you go to JesusPeaceCollective.com, P-E-A-C-E, um, I'm heavily involved in the work of Christian nonviolence and what it means to follow Jesus uh, in specifically in the realm of loving our enemies and what are the implications of that. And so Jesus Peace Collective is a is a collaborative um, ecumenical um resource for people to learn more about, I think, especially in my life and faith journey and, and in our faith tradition, uh, many people have not been uh, very exposed to some of these ideas and, and questions. And so that's a place that people can go as well to learn. And, and um, if you uh, use the contact button there, it will also come to me. Uh, so either one of those sites would work and uh, definitely grateful if you have more questions or want to follow up. I will say, though, that uh, the microchurch expression thing is, is you know, we do not have all the answers. And so if you write me with a question, I, I'm I'm just as likely going to respond with another question. So <laughs> just, to, just to set expectations. Great. Thank you so much, John. You got it. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks for listening. Here's how you can help support the program. First of all, hit the subscribe button and send a link to your friends. Secondly, read and review one of my books. How to Plant and Grow a Church, or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. They're easy to find. Just Google Rob Skinner on Amazon.com, and my name will pop up. You'll see, the, you'll see the books right there. And if you've already read one of the books, and I really appreciate you doing that, please take a second to write a review on Amazon.com. It makes a huge difference. There's so many millions of books out there. It just gets lost in the sauce. What makes a difference is if they get reviewed, other people can find them as well. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.